Well, our passage tonight is from James chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses. And uh, so thank you for joining me. And, and uh, do you want to read the passage tonight before I pray? And I'm going to start reading from the end of chapter 3. Uh, once again, just stating the importance of context. Uh, remember that we do need to study not only verses in context, but even the extended or larger passages need to be understood in the particular flow of, of the context of the passage. So if we go back to chapter 3 and verse 17. Remember we were speaking about wisdom from above and trying to elaborate and understand that particular section. And then verse 17, James writes, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and then he says in verse 18, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then very interestingly, we have this chapter division that were not originally in the manuscript. Uh, James goes on to speak about the opposite of peace. He goes on and addresses the issue of conflict. And then beginning in chapter 4 verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and he judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save, uh, to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Uh, let's just bow together in a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for your word directing us. And we do want to look to you tonight again as we consider this passage. Lord, considering who you are as a God who has reconciled us as sinful people to yourself when we were at enmity with you. While we were yet sinners, again we understand and remember that Christ died for us. And so as we turn to this passage that really addresses uh, regular issues that can occur in our lives, uh, particularly in conflict or disagreement with others, Lord, we do pray that you would guide and direct us and teach us, we pray. May we learn, may we listen, 
And Lord, benefit to the glory of your name from this kind of teaching once again tonight. And so committing ourselves to you, acknowledging, Lord, our own uh, sinfulness before you, confessing, Lord, that we are indeed sinners in need of your continual grace. And won't you minister that to us here tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Now, I deliberately went back to the end of chapter 3. James speaking there about wisdom and, and the need for wisdom and wisdom being from above. And ending in verse 18, really the consequence of wisdom, that those who acquire wisdom, those who have wisdom, ought to see a harvest of righteousness, that which is pleasing to God, that which is holy, that which is not uh, uh, sinful, uh, that which is, he says, sown in peace by those who make peace. Then suddenly he changes gears and when you function as a professing Christian dependent on the wisdom from above, that's essentially what he's saying here, you should be able to deal with controversial matters. You should be able to deal with conflict and, and difference, differences with others. It would be helpful, I believe, or uh, helpful to clarify. Differences occur. Having differences sometimes is even acceptable, just depending on the type of difference, whether this is a primary issue or a secondary issue or a preferred issue. The challenge tonight is how do we deal with differences? How do we deal with conflict? And so having reached this very positive point at the end of chapter 3, suddenly in the same breath, God now directing James to throw out a very, very important question. Now, now, now remember, remember he won't throw out the question as merely, as merely something that is speculative or theoretical. He must have heard. In fact, he did hear. We will see that later on as we go in the study in the issues that he's already addressed. That, that there were certainly issues of conflict amongst the people. And the pertinent question he asks is, chapter 4 verse 1, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Important question. Question that we ought to ask ourselves uh, in the context of a community of believers where we gather together with people from uh, so many different backgrounds and and preferences and cultures and even uh, cultural preferences. Uh, And and so we need to ask then, what what is it? What causes uh, quarrels and fights among you when they exist and and the question can be asked in different ways why is it that so often christians fight we're not speaking tonight about those who are unbelievers we're speaking about those who profess to be believers people who profess to be reconciled to god why is it that sometimes even amongst leaders and leadership in a church or leadership in a denomination Uh, these leaders resort to using, and I thought of the phrase, tongues as fists, lashing out at others and hurting each other, and doing so believing that somehow this would solve their differences. You can even take it a step further. Why is it that churches split? Sometimes over the most trivial of issues, where some... People from a congregation simply move away and and start another church and and profess 
to be uh, bearers of the good news and, and yet when they walk around at the supermarket, whether it be checkers or pick and pay, and they see members from the previous uh, congregation, they, they suddenly turn their heads in another direction. Why, why does that happen? Why does that happen? Why, why are there so many instances where there are uh, moans and rumbles and grumbles below the surface over sometimes insignificant issues? If I can add the phrase, even in Bible-believing evangelical churches. An illustration I found, and uh, not my own, I borrowed it, uh, the perception of churches bickering and brawling uh, come uh, in the context of a, a young father, a lesson that he learned from his children. And this is how the story unfolds. This father, having heard a commotion in his backyard, he looked outside through the window and he saw his daughter and other uh, playmates, other friends, in heated argument. They, they were having a go at each other. And when he intervened, trying to break it up, I guess, his daughter called back, Dad, we are just playing church. It kind of stings a bit, doesn't it? And so firstly this evening, I do want to go on and ask a question. Why do Christians fight? As I said earlier, this is not a hypothetical case. Uh, James is not just dealing with some kind of theoretical, practical theology. He's addressing specific people in a specific context. They are the scattered tribes, and uh, they're believers. They're believers. And there were eruptions of, of conflict. There was certainly some strife that we can identify amongst them, even as we look at some of the opening verses and chapters of the book amongst these Jewish Christians. And let me just remind you of uh, chapter 2, verse 1 to 11, where we address the issue. They were experiencing some class conflicts between rich and poor. James needed to address them in that particular instance, uh, addressing the issue of showing partiality or not showing partiality. Then we also learned back in chapter 1, verse 19 to 26, that there were some among them who were always very willing to offer an opinion and having a lot to say, but not prepared to listen to others. So you can imagine, you can imagine uh, whether it be two groups of people or just two individuals sitting down and talking and, and the other one not giving the other any opportunity to speak, not being willing to listen, but just spitting forth their opinion, their advice, uh, their thoughts and not being a listener. Others were boiling over in chapter 3, verse 14 and 16 with bitter envy and selfish ambition. Now that immediately tells you that there can be, uh, there, ought, uh, there is a relationship uh, difficulty and issue. I was listening to a Q&A with a well-known uh, preacher in the United States, uh, Doug Wilson, and uh, somebody asked him the question, uh, what was the one particular issue? Uh, the the sin, what, what is that one particular sin that is so prevalent and rife in society in our particular day, 2022? And he responded with a single word, envy. People are envious. We people are envious of each other. 
not satisfied with what we have, but wanting what other people have, and so causing conflict. Uh, another instance, the hypocrisy we're told about in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, where in uh, one breath it is the praising of God, and yet at the same, the very next breath there is the cursing of those with whom they differ. So can you see the, the, the issue of, of the need for peacemaking, the need for peace to be addressed? And so it does bring us back to this important question that we need to be asking ourselves even tonight, is what is it? What is it that causes fights and quarrels among us? Why is there strife? Why is there conflict amongst those who are believers? Uh, we need to think about that. I need to think, does this apply to me? Is it true of me? Well, I have a couple of points that I've picked out from uh, the passage. And if we go to the very first verse, uh, we're going to see there that the first reason is we need to have a look at the origin of strife. Where does it come from? Uh, this is uh, certainly a reason uh, why there are uh, fights and quarrels. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And then he answers his own question. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Where is this coming from? James says, it is about your passions. It's about my passions within, desires, desires. And, and in a sermon recently, I spoke about having legitimate desires. But I went on to speak about corrupted desires. Those desires are corrupted. Or in this particular context where James is speaking about these passions at war within you, he's referring to sinful passions, sinful desires, being obsessed with this one purpose over and above all else of self-satisfaction. Don't often quote Greek words, but let me at least refer to the Greek word uh, that James uses here, it is the word that we get our English uh, word hedonism from. Now, what is hedonism, even in our English context and, 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 and understanding? It's the belief that pleasure, pleasure, my pleasure is the chief good in life. Hedonism means that pleasing self is uh, high on the agenda uh, very important and, and a priority. And, and so that's, that's the problem. These sinful desires result in quarrels because they are selfish desires. It's about me. It's about my. It's about I. It's about what I want. It's about selfishness. It's about self-satisfaction. It's about self-actualization. And, and so these desires will support and boost expressed opinions insisting that you get your own way or that I get my own way. Here's a quote from author Robert Johnson. He says, Somewhere in every quarrel is the love for ascendancy over others. I'm right and you are wrong is a foundational assumption. That, that's the problem with the desires within us, our sinful desires. We, we just know it all. And, and you probably referred to that phrase about some other people. That woman, that man, that pastor, he's just a know-it-all. Well, we all suffer with that particular problem when we give ourselves to sin, to sinful nature. 
when righteousness loses in the battle inside of you, then it will soon break out in battles outside of you. Let me read that again. When righteousness loses the battle inside of you, it's a hard issue, then it will soon break out in battles outside of you. So these sinful desires, this uh, uh, obsession to, to, to be over and above and uh, others and to have one's own way, which then reveals, secondly, the nature of the strife. Verse 2. You desire, but you do not have. Do you know the feeling? Sitting in church, and there is a particular style of song happening. You just desire something else, but you don't get it. Or within the context of leadership, where there are perhaps 18 or 20 other people and you have an opinion and you see others' opinions seem to be carrying the argument or the debate of the day, and you're just longing, you're longing for your opinion to, ru- to, rule, to rule the decision of the day. And in so many areas, in, in, in the context of, of our marriages, a husband wanting his way, a wife wanting her way, a teenager wanting his or her way. And, and, and so this carries on. It, the nature of the strife is you want something, but you don't get it, and therefore you don't like it, and, and you're unhappy. And, and in, the passage goes on in the next part of the verse. You, you, because you desire and you don't have, the second part of the verse says, so you murder? And we see that with Cain. Murdering Abel, perhaps an extreme example, and, and it may not be physical murder, but so often slaying people with the words that we lash out with. James continues, so you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You resort to conflict, and, and it's conflict uh, that has an intention of, of beating the other person. And winning the day. I do want to refer, and it's in a different context entirely, but if you remember David uh, in a particular season of his life when he's distant from God and he sets his heart on having Bathsheba. The satisfaction of his lust was what he wanted and he went to every extent to get it. And, and, and it didn't matter. Destroyed a marriage, killed uh, her husband, and then he wanted to hide the sin. And, and that's the nature. That's the nature of the strife. Is the, the, asking yourself, to what extent are you prepared to go to get what you want? And notice, we haven't spoken about what God wants. There's another aspect that we need to look at as to why there are fights and quarrels among you, and I've called it the prayerlessness of strife. Again, continuing in the second verse, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Being so obsessed with the satisfaction of getting your own way actually leads you down a pathway where there is no understanding, no recognition, no acknowledgement, there's no encouragement toward a dependency on God. The question 
seldom asked in these contexts, Lord, what is it that you want? Sincerely asking, Lord, what is it that is your will? Jesus actually sets an example. The thought comes to my mind. Lord, uh, Father, remove this cup from me, but not not my will, but your will. Your will be done. We, that's absent, James says, in the context of conflict. Why, and, 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 and the reason is, why ask God when you know everything anyway? And then he adds, I've seen this so often. When, when uh, believers hide behind a spiritual uh, guys or guys of spirituality and 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 they they say that they're praying they even ask others to pray and 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 James identifies that kind of approach he says even when there's an effort to pray it it might be or it is that your motives are all skew verse 3 you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So the, the, the point is there are times when we are willing to go to prayer, but our willingness to go to prayer is not so much, Lord, that your will be done, but that my will be your will. We ought to be praying as it is in heaven. So it ought to be on earth. And so prayer is not a, a, a means or servant of selfish desire. Prayer is not some kind of spiritual lucky charm that somehow convinces God to give you or give me what, what you want or I want. Dear friends, prayer is the language of dependence. It's a language of submission. Those two words, so important. The language of dependence. Lord, I am finite. Lord, I lack wisdom. Lord, I am sinful. Lord, I don't know really what the right thing to do is. This is what I think, but, but I'm not sure. Uh, dependence. Won't you guide me? Won't you lead me? And, and, and there are so many clearly uh, defined, explicit uh, words of counsel in the scripture that guide us and lead us. But sadly, so often we can even refer to those passages and someone will turn around. But... They try and duck and dive and avoid submission to God and to his word. But let us move on and uh, I want to look now to the second half of the passage where we see something more of the positive counsel. So we've seen now uh, something of what causes fights and quarrels among you. But I want to go on and look at now what is the solution? What is, what is God uh, telling us through James as the Spirit of God uh, leads him. Well, we do need to understand, just to sum up where we come from, is because of our sinful desires, because of our sinful nature, because of the passions within us, the best we have to offer on our own will not ordinarily bring peace. What we have to offer on our own, apart from God, will not bring about a happy church. I'm happy. I'm so glad to be at the Central Baptist Church where there's a community of people who really look to God as setting the agenda, who look to God to have Him exalted in our midst and where we're not elevating individual personalities or uh, ideas uh, outside of the scope of that which God has revealed. God sets the agenda and that's it. And so what we need to see, and, and James is going to show us in this passage, we constantly stand in need of God 
And James is going to show it to us in this passage. Who generously gives more grace. Verse 6. Very interesting inclusion of the word more. But he gives more grace. What do you mean by that? We know conversion. There is the wonderful gift of salvation uh, from God's hand to undeserving sinners, an act of grace, uh, God making alive those who are dead in sin. James is reminding us over here that it's not just an act of grace at conversion, but the very nature of God is that he's full of grace, full of mercy. And so God directing his grace toward his children as that which does not come to an end. It's not finite. It's not limited. His patience is not exhausted like with us in a particular situation. His initiative, his, his moving toward us in grace is not a, a temporary or, or isolated uh, action or uh, incident. His, his generosity, if we think in those terms or that aspect of grace, has, has no limit. Dear friend, remember tonight that God gives more grace. Any human illustration will fail. But I did try and think uh, of something that might uh, help in understanding this. And if you've been to any of uh, the major waterfalls around the world, uh, Niagara Falls, Victoria Falls, I, I visited once in, in, in Argentina, uh, amazing uh, Iguazu Falls. And, and each time I, I'm exposed or I even think about it, but certainly standing, watching this water gushing over uh, the cliffs and, and the edges of the mountainside, and it never ends. It, it fascinates me that you have all this water. I'm told in Pretoria when my tap leaks, we're going to run out of water. But when I go to any kind of waterfall, this water is just gushing and gushing, and tomorrow it's gushing and gushing, and next year it continues to fall and fall, and, and so it's unending. There's always more to come. And so we need to understand and appreciate and, and reflect on the fact that the grace of God is like a flood. God having overwhelming, favorable regard for his children, even though we're not worthy. Uh, in my prayer at the beginning, I indicated while we were yet sinners, and even along the way, as we fail, as these passions rule untimely and inappropriately, God's grace toward us. More than saving grace, I've said that, it also is God's gracious supply of grace to live in the context of community, in the context of the family, in the context of parenting or uh, being a child, being raised in a home. Uh, understand, understand that there's nothing you will do that will make God love you more, as it were, or nothing you will, that you don't do that will make you love you less. Because when he loved you in the first instance, you were unlovable. That's the nature of grace. All because of the work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Justice being satisfied. Jesus receiving in his body the wrath of God due to us sinners. 
So grace, grace is a very big part of our, it ought to be a very big part of our understanding of daily living. And, and the reason for that is grace produces a corresponding response. Grace is not isolated. If God's grace has been poured into your life, then there is a corresponding response. The, the person who is receiving this more grace from God and following the theme that James has been tackling right from the very beginning of the book is it produces faith that works. Evidence, evidence that points to grace that is present in the life. And so the next section uh, gives us something of the idea, something of, of, of what kind of response uh, ought to flow and, and the challenge to you and to me on how we can proceed as those who are true believers having received grace. So James goes back and in the second part of verse 6, uh, he says, therefore it says, God opposes the pr- proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's some responsibility on your shoulders. God opposes the proud. See, pride is just an indication of the domination of sin and self and selfish desires. Whereas grace produces humility. And humility is about poverty of spirit, genuine poverty of spirit. It's, it's, it's about recognizing, and we'll see more of that as we go through this passage, something of the greatness of God and the amazing love that he has for us who are undeserving people. He goes on in verse 7. Uh, those who are receiving this grace uh, and, and in a place of humility, the place of poverty of spirit, the poor in spirit, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So on the basis of God giving grace to the humble, there's some counsel for you and me to take and put into practice. And, and, and what does that look like? So again, I've just tried to uh, put it in some sort of structure that helps us understand it. And uh, in the first instance, what does it look like? Well, it, it requires active allegiance. I should have put their active allegiance to God. Submit yourselves therefore to God. There's a positive aligning to God, under God, for God. Did you get that? And and, and in case you didn't get that wrong, there is an, an, an active dissociation or distancing uh, away from Satan. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So practically put, you need to have, I need to have in my mind on a daily basis, whose side are you on? Are you really with God? Are you actively pursuing allegiance and loyalty and submission to God? That ought to be visible. Not only to you, but also to others. Others ought to see, here is a woman, here is a man who is really aligned with God. Here is a person who is willing to submit to God, even in the midst of difficult circumstances of life, in the midst of a difficult decision that, that needs to be made, but is clearly uh, revealed in the Scriptures. Enlisted as subordinates and Devils, the devil's opponents. Involving yourself actively under the authority of God. 
just doing what he says. Whatever he says to you, do it. It's simple. It's simple. Do it. The result will be that the devil will flee from you. But he goes on, and again, just uh, another aspect of it, deliberately cultivating or cultivated fellowship, and it's fellowship with God in verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You see, this, this is a command with a promise. But, but, but we must aware of our, be aware of our natural tendency. In the midst of any kind of difficulty, whether it be a circumstance or whether it be a, a, a situation of hardship with an individual where there's conflict and uh, real uh, difficulty, our tendency, our natural tendency is to actually draw away from God, to run from God. James says, no, no don't run from God. Rather, put in place the necessary disciplines to build your relationship with God. Constantly uh, having that relationship with God. Seek the presence of God. And, and, and sometimes we don't feel the presence of God. We'll, we'll just do what you know is right in, in, the, in the spiritual disciplines, whether it be in the public worship or the corporate worship times of prayer or uh, the apostles' teaching or the breaking of bread or in fellowship, or, or whether it be in the private disciplines of your own study, or, or even uh, spiritual watchfulness, and, and there are many other of these, quietness before God, uh, meditation, deliberately cultivated fellowship with God will lead towards the blessing and reality of being able to be a peacemaker, being humble, so as to be someone who is a peacemaker. There is always the need, and I've called it here, to have a thorough ongoing spring clean. Uh, we have to always, constantly be looking to see, is there sin present in my life? And so James says in verse 8, the second part, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, you need to take some responsibility, as I need to take responsibility, of cleaning up outward sins and inward defilement. Search my heart, O God. Show me. Throw the spotlight on me. Help me to see the sin that is present in my life. And then that follows. There's something that follows. There is a turning away from sin. And, and strong words by James here. Yeah? Uh, he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. In other words, you need to see something of the ugliness of your sin and turn from it, run from it, and turn to Jesus in faith. And then keeping the right perspective, I believe is my last point. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, I want to tell you, and you know this, this is contrary to human nature when sinful uh, passions are dominant. To humble yourselves before the Lord and leave things in the hand of God, trusting God, trusting him in his providence, trusting him in obedience to his word when, when uh, our logic might be dictating something else, but knowing, knowing God is God. God is infinitely wise, God is all wise, God is all powerful, God is unfolding his purposes in this world, God is providentially uh, uh, coordinating and moving things according to his purpose, we can trust him. We, we, we are not the ones who are going to bring about uh, redemption history. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Well, let me conclude. The passage starts on a somewhat negative note about Christians at war. This is not unusual. As I started in my introduction, sadly, it occurs far too often. We started, therefore, looking at the selfish desires and self-centeredness of the sinful passions within us. Real and unfortunate. But notice where the passage is ending. It's ending at a place of drawing close to God in a walk of humility. That's different. It's so different to where we started. And it's hard. It's hard for us to know whether we are humble or not. One of those virtues that God knows and others can see. Uh, When we begin to see ourselves and describe ourselves as humble, well, we're no longer humble. I think pride has taken over. But what we can do, we can't see whether we're humble or not. But what we can see is what kind of person am I in the context of relationships? What kind of person do people experience me to be? Am I someone who always demands my way? Am I someone who is stubborn and hard-headed and upstream, always difficult, always causing conflict, never seeking peace? Never seeking to listen, never seeking to submit to God. What is it that is the right thing to do, but rather having always wanting to have the upper hand? Well, I would hope that looking at this study tonight and reflecting in your life, reflecting in my life, that we would see a willingness for peace. Not one who causes trouble, but one who is a peacemaker. And therefore to nurture that submission to God in humility. And so what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, Christians are at times at war with each other because we forget the grace of God. We let sinful desires get the upper hand. And once the sinful desires get the upper hand, selfishness will be nurtured and fed. Self-gratification and pride will dominate and conflict will result. And so believer, fellow believer, you can live in peace with others. So can I. And it's a challenge to me by actively responding to God's grace and and adopting a humble walk. Lord, to pray and ask for your continued work in us by your Spirit, sanctifying us conforming us, transforming us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And Lord, I do pray if anybody listening to this is in a situation of conflict, where it's been brought about by sinful desires and passions, the demanding of one's own way, Lord, I pray that you would convict and bring about, Lord, a willingness to submit to you, and to your way, knowing that in all things, Lord, justice also belongs to the Lord. Pray for our church, that you would continue to help us to be united, to be a church that is happy, and as we navigate relationships, to have patience for each other, with each other, love for each other, 
as we experience and walk in response to your grace, more grace that we need day by day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So one last slide, as usual. We have some questions, just three questions tonight. I try to keep it short because I think it's important that we look at the reasons, again, why Christians fight. You can pick them out from the passage. Perhaps you've taken notes. And then the biblical reasons how we can avoid fighting also in this passage tonight. So may God bless you, be with you, and uh, look forward uh, to being together on the weekend as we worship together uh, in God's house.